A Thai Life Sciences is one of 2021's most highly anticipated psychedelic IPOs. A Thai Life Sciences has a pipeline of over 10 different drugs, owns a major stake in Compass Pathways, and in addition to psychedelics, they're also researching digital therapeutics and brain-computer interfaces. When their IPO happens, they are expected to be the most valuable, if not at least in the top two or three most valuable psychedelic companies on the market. In this video, we're going to sort of peek behind the curtain of a tie and try to answer the question, is this high valuation justified or is it just a bunch of hype? And in doing so, we're going to ask a bunch of sub-questions that help us find the answer to that big question. We're going to talk about who is the founder, Christian Angermeyer? What does a tie's pipeline really consist of? What kind of drugs are they working on? We're going to examine the unorthodox nature of their corporate structure. And we're going to ask another question that's maybe not so obvious, which is, is it even really fair or accurate to call a tie a psychedelics company? The answer might surprise you. And finally, of course, while we're doing this, we're going to sort of compare and contrast a tie against, you know, the Mac Daddy, Reddit's favorite shroom stock, Mind Medicine, and see, is a tie and MindMed, are, are they competitors? Are they people that are both on the same path that can help each other along their journeys? Um, you know, is, is what's good for a tie good for MindMed, or are they bitter rivals? We're going to try and answer all these questions and more in this video. Now, um, I have a bit of a confession to make. Um, my goal for this channel is to at least release one video every week. And I've been trying to release them on Sunday mornings because that seems to be when the, the viewership is the highest. And it is now Saturday night. It is almost like 8.30, 8.45 p.m. on Saturday night. And I didn't start working on this video until about 1 or 2 p.m. in the afternoon today. Now, to let you give, an, to give you an idea of what normally happens with my videos, I usually spend a couple of days sort of going over the outline. Not spending the whole, multiple days on the outline by itself, but I give myself plenty of time to craft a nice outline, gather the relevant facts, and then I have like a full day where I can wake up in the morning fresh and shoot. But um, my personal life was extremely hectic this week, and I also got my first dose of the Pfizer COVID-19 shot, which gave me, I wasn't sick, but I had like this mental fog that lasted two or three days, and I, I really just did not have the time to go as deep or as thorough as I have in some of my other videos. So if you feel like my analysis in this video is maybe lacking or doesn't go as deep as it should, I understand. I'm sorry. And, you know, it was my decision to try to stick to the schedule rather than delay it and make it more in depth. What I'll probably end up doing is do maybe a second video once a tie actually IPOs, and maybe we have some more information about it, and I'll do a second deep dive then. So for those of you who watch my channel because you appreciate the very deep nature of my videos, I hope I didn't let you down this time. I still think that I have a couple of interesting, maybe not so obvious takes about a tie. And hopefully you'll still learn something that you didn't already know from this presentation. So, you know, mea culpa, I guess. And I'm definitely going to try and do better next time. Um, let's, let's do the disclaimers and the housekeeping before we actually get to the meat of the video. So as always, you know, this is not financial advice. Obviously, a tie isn't public yet, so you can't even buy it. But if it was public, you still shouldn't buy it or sell it or make any investing decision about it because of what I say in this video. You should only make that decision because you've done your own research. And uh, by the way, I have a video where I talk about how to do your own research, so you might want to check that one out. But um, even if you watch that, and that doesn't mean that you like totally know how to do your own research, you should always uh, consult a financial advisor that has their interests aligned with your own if you have any questions about 
managing your personal finances, okay? This is not financial advice. I also wanna point out that um, this video is uh, also available in audio-only version on Spotify and other podcast platforms. So if you don't like watching a YouTube video for an hour, well, you can listen on Spotify. And if you're listening on Spotify or a podcast platform, guess what, I have a YouTube channel. So you can check out the visuals if you want to. Um, also, some people were telling me that it would be a good idea for me to like introduce myself at the beginning of my videos. I haven't been doing that. Um, my name is Brahm. Yes, that is my real first name. Um, my background is that I have had a seven-year career in hedge funds. I currently do not work for a hedge fund. I am doing this YouTube channel full-time. Um, I also am a CFA charter holder, so I have a pretty somewhat long professional finance background. And I've been personally interested in and involved with psychedelics for almost the same amount of time as the uh, the hedge fund career lasted about seven years. So that's sort of my background. You also should know that I always try to disclose any personal positions that I have in psychedelic stocks before I start the videos. And a tie is obviously not public, so I obviously don't have any shares in them, but I do own shares in Mind Medicine and Compass Pathways and some of the other stocks that we're gonna talk about today. I don't own any short positions in any psychedelic stocks. So I think that's um, about it for the housekeeping. I think we should dive into the meat. Let's, let's do that. Let's talk about a tie life sciences. If you guys have watched my other videos about psychedelic stocks, you know that I like to start off every single video with a discussion of the team behind the company. And in the case of a tie, it's a little bit different. Um, in the case of a tie, we have sort of like an overlapping team with a team that I've covered before, the team behind Compass Pathways. So a tie was founded shortly after Compass Pathways was founded, and many of the same characters involved with Compass are, in, are involved with the tie. So we see uh, Lars, who I think is the C, what is he, the chief business officer of Compass. Um, the early founders, George Goldsmith and E. Katarina, they're also involved with the tie. Peter Thiel, a major investor in Compass, is also a major investor in a tie. And so I, I and, and so because of that, and also because of what I said at the beginning of the video, where I didn't have a ton of time to do this video, I'm not going to dive in heavy into like every single member the team like I normally do. You should check out the Compass video and see what I say about those characters there. Um, but there is one person that I think it's worth touching on, and that is sort of the main man behind a tie. And that is German entrepreneur and billionaire investor, Christian Angermeyer. Now, I'm not going to go super deep into Christian because, you know, he's somewhat of a public figure. There's been plenty of shit written about him, unlike, you know, JR from MindMed and Peyton Nyquist, who were sort of like these unknown characters. And I felt like it was sort of my duty to do some digging into them. Um, Christian Angermeyer, he's, he's had a lot written about him, so it's very easy for you to do your own research on him. But he's received a lot of coverage lately, and I thought it would be interesting to read some excerpts from some articles that have been written about him. And just to give you a background on this guy, this guy is sort of like a lifelong sort of serial entrepreneur. The, the, the word on the street is that he dropped out of college when he was 20 years old, founded a biotech company with his friends, or sorry, with his professors, and you know became a millionaire very quickly. Um, I read some stuff that suggested that his parents were very wealthy. I'm not sure if that's totally true or not. Um, but he is sort of like a Elon Musk combined with a Chamath from Europe. He's like a guy that has invested in space companies. He's doing a bunch of SPAC deals. He's been involved with crypto. He invests in like longevity. A lot of these like really big moonshot crazy ideas. And he's also, 
he seems to have sort of like a more libertarian slant, although European libertarianism is maybe a little bit different than what we think about in the US. Um, and one of the weird things about libertarians is that there seems to be this weird intersection of like people that are libertarian and teetotalers, people that like don't do any alcohol or, you know, any drugs in their life. And, um, you know, Christian, he's like 42 years old. And part of his story is that unlike, you know, JR from MindMed, who was addicted to uh, cocaine, benzos, and alcohol, and then did psychedelics to get clean, this guy had like the opposite situation. He was totally sober for like his entire life, never had a sip of alcohol, at least according to the articles that I read. And then pretty late in life, I think he's 42 now, and he said it started in 2016. So, you know, maybe when he was, you know, 36, 37 years old, he did psilocybin because his doctor told him it was safe when he was on a vacation in the Caribbean. And it like totally blew his fucking mind. And now, like I said, very late in life, this guy's in his late thirties, he's now become like obsessed with psychedelics. And I'm going to show you some like concrete examples of proof of like that this guy is literally obsessed like with psychedelics to a degree that he does not seem to be obsessed with any of his other business ventures. And uh, I think that some of these things are kind of cute slash funny. We'll, we'll see. Um, but I'm just going to start by reading some of these excerpts from this magazine. So there is a European magazine called Sifted. And uh, they have this series called, I think it's like Brunch with Sifted or something, where they go to these famous people's houses and they do brunch with them and they interview them. So these are a couple of choice paragraphs that I clipped from the Sifted article. And th this is talking about how he became involved in uh, psychedelics and psilocybin. So it started, he says, with friends on the Caribbean island of Canoan, where he notes that it's legal, back in 2014. He had resisted pressure for years. He had never drunk, smoked, or done any drugs before, so he was reluctant to try psilocybin. But when he finally tried it, he found it such a profound experience that he became a diehard convert to its positive benefits on mental health. All of my trips together now make some of the most meaningful experiences of my life, he says. Very quickly, he began searching for a way to turn this into a business. When his friend Michael Novogratz, Novogatz, sorry, Novogratz, in 2017 introduced him to George Goldsmith and E. Katerina, who now lead Compass Pathways, and who had similar ideas about the benefits of psilocybin for mental health. A few weeks later, Angermeyer had promised the couple three millions of, the three million of investment that they needed to start a real business. They had spent years in meetings getting nowhere, but I stopped them after 10 minutes and said, I'm in. The three million was split between Novogratz, Teal, and Angermeyer. Just a few years later, Compass Pathways is doing psilocybin therapy clinical trials in 20 sites across non... Okay, so that's just talking about um, Compass Pathways, and they bring up the criticisms of uh, Compass Pathways trying to patent psilocybin. And Angermeyer says, we're not coming after the hippies growing this organically at home, he says. We are patenting this so we can bring the synthetic version of this natural drug to the hundreds of millions of people who need it for medical conditions and can only get it if it's prescribed by doctors and paid for by their health insurance. Um, a little bit about his background. They mentioned in this article, they say he was born in a small town in northern Bavaria to a mother who was a secretary and a father who was an engineer. If you would ask my parents what I should be, they would have said teacher or doctor. But by the age of 20, he was dropping out of university to found his first biotech company, Ribopharma, with two of his professors, which eventually merged with Analam Pharmaceuticals and listed on the stock exchange and is now worth over $15 billion. Ever since then, he's been starting tech companies and investing, initially with four friends and now alone through Alperion, which is his family office. 
One of his big breaks came from during the European sovereign debt crisis, where thanks to some political connections, he became known amongst elite investor circles worldwide as someone who understood the problem, and more importantly, how Germany saw it. This made him friends and eventually co-investors with, you know, people like Peter Thiel. Um, so th this is sort of like a bit about his background, how he got into psychedelics. There's another pair excerpt that I want to quote from a, a Daily Beast article that it says, this is sort of some maybe negative, sketchy things about him. It says, Engermeyer has also gotten involved in some murky corporate deals. Last summer, Engermeyer collected multi-million dollar fees for brokering a soft bank deal with the German financial company Wirecard. Not long after, the latter collapsed and was accused of widespread fraud. A friend whom Engermeyer had helped get a board position at Deutsche Bank was later served with a criminal complaint for charges related to the Wirecard scandal. So, Obviously, this is not a super deep investigation into Angermeyer's background. He does seem like one of these, you know, Elon Musk type characters who has certainly been lucky, maybe had some family help, maybe didn't, um, you know, is invested in all sorts of different types of like big future far out tech stuff. But he at this point in his life seems like very, very focused on psychedelics. Um, and I'm going to show you some examples of this. So I, one of my favorite things to do when you're doing research on a founder is uh, go to their Instagram. And it's, it's always interesting to see what the uh, Instagrams of like these billionaire type people are like. So I, I found a couple of choice pictures on Angermeyer's Instagram that I'm going to share with you. And of course, this is a, this is public. This is, I didn't create a creeper account and follow him and get accepted. This is, this is on his public Instagram. Okay. So I'm not doing anything weird here. All right, so first we have, <laughs> this was posted in October 2020, Angermeyer in front of some sort of green screen magic mushroom thing that looks like, you know, a poster that might be on, you know, some stoner's dorm room wall. Hashtag World Mental Health Day, psychedelics, magic mushrooms, magic. Okay. Another picture of him, you know, very serious with the uh, mushroom background and the hoodie that has a little psilocybin cube in the hash, the, uh, caption is a picture is worth a thousand words. So, I mean, I think that this is almost like, you know, it's very earnest. It, I, I, I don't want to like be a hater or anything. It's just very earnest. Like you don't see even like JR from MindMed, you don't see him like posing with these sorts of backgrounds. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of cute. I, I, I think it's harmless, but this, this next thing I'm going to show you right here, this is the real kicker that really got me. So we have this picture of him getting a tattoo and he says, it didn't even hurt a lot. First tattoo ever. Next one, maybe for the Atai IPO. And if you scroll to the next picture in the set, you see that the tattoo he got was a tattoo of the psilocybin molecule right there on his forearm. Now, this is why I mean that this guy, um, you know, seems to be obsessed with psychedelics in a way that he's not obsessed with any of the other fields that he's involved in. I mean, this is his only tattoo, is at least according to the caption. Um, and he's invested in all these other industries, and I don't see any tattoos related to those industries on him. And, uh, you know, again, I don't want to be a hater. I just, I think it's like very earnest and um, kind of endearing and funny. And, you know, it's easy to say like, this is, this is really cheesy, like what the fuck. But at the same time, you know, we talk all the time about how there are many of these like rich business people who are interested in psychedelics, maybe for the wrong reasons. And they're not really committed for the long term. And if a tattoo of psilocybin doesn't say committed for the long term, I mean, I don't know what is. So I, you know, I don't know how to take this. This is obviously like a minor point. I don't think it should influence your opinion about a tie one way or the other. I just kind of think it's like kind of interesting and thought it would be kind of fun to show. Um, another total side point that 
you know, shouldn't really influence your opinion on a tie or not is, again, this was a guy who supposedly like wasn't involved in any sort of substance use, not even alcohol for his entire life. And then later on became basically like a psychedelic enthusiast. And at the same time, this guy is sort of a, you know, techie, future-oriented, maybe quasi-libertarian um, businessman. And he is obviously like very into psychedelics. And I think that there are a lot of people that are very into psychedelics that kind of have this idea that like psychedelics are generally associated with like left wing, maybe, you know, hippie ideals. And that like, there's sort of this idea that once you get into psychedelics, you can't hold more like pro-capitalist, pro-private enterprise, pro-private property beliefs. But I think this just kind of goes to show that that's maybe not necessarily true and that no political ideology has a monopoly on psychedelic use. And I don't know that you can necessarily judge someone's political views um, just because they may or may not have had experience with psychedelic drugs. Um, so I think that's that's kind of an interesting thing to point out. But enough with the chatter about, you know, Christian Angermeyer's personal history with psychedelics. I think we should move on to talking about the rest of the company. Um, again, I think it's worth digging more into Christian Angermeyer's background and also digging more into the background of some of the other people involved. Uh, like I said, many of those people are involved in Compass, and I have covered them in my Compass video, so check that out. But um, later, when I do my Atai version 2 video, I will try to cover anything that I missed. So let's move on to talking about the corporate structure and organization of Atai Life Sciences. Most of the psychedelic companies that we've covered so far, like Compass Pathways and Mind Medicine, are pretty simple. They're a company, they have some researchers, and they do the research, and that's it. But it ties a little bit more complicated. And while they actually push back against this characterization in their S1, the fact is, is that they sort of operate more like an investment firm than a research company. So a tie actually a Thai corporation itself doesn't actually do any research on molecules. What they do is a Thai is sort of a group of like well-connected businessmen and financiers that have a good ability to, you know, raise capital for biotech. And what they do is they do one of two things. They either find these small research companies and they acquire them or they come up with ideas for, you know, molecules that maybe should be researched and they actually form a company and fund it. And, you know, what's unique about their acquisition strategy is that normally when you see a company acquire another company, um, like we, we saw a Cybin acquire Adelia Therapeutics, Adelia Therapeutics gets like totally absorbed into Cybin. But that's not what happens here. When, 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 um, ugh, when a tie acquires a company, they, they sort of allow it to continue to operate independently. They don't absorb it. They, they leave it as a separate item on their balance sheet. And their pitch is sort of that, this is like a decentralized structure that allows these companies to operate independently, but at the same time still sort of share some resources, share some expertise, and have access to this like institutional grade, uh, you know, like compliance teams, legal teams, clinical practitioner teams, um, et cetera. So I'm just going to read what they say in their S1 about their corporate structure. And then we're going to, I'm going to have a few like points of commentary on like how this can be viewed as maybe a good thing, but how it can also be viewed as a bad thing, depending on what your perspective is. So it says here, since our inception in 2018, 
we have focused substantially all of our efforts and financial resources on acquiring and developing product and technology rights, establishing our platform, building our intellectual property portfolio, and conducting research and development activities for our product candidates within our Atai companies. MindMed doesn't say that, right? Because MindMed only has one company, but Atai has many companies. Within our Atai companies that we consolidate based on our controlling financial interests of such entities. We operate a decentralized model to enable scalable drug or technological development at our Atai companies. Our Atai companies drive development for our programs and enabling technologies that we have either acquired a controlling or significant interest in or created from scratch. We believe that this model provides our development teams the support and incentives to rapidly advance their therapeutic candidates or technologies in a cost-effective manner. We look to optimize deployment of capital in order to maximize value for our stakeholders. Very original sentence right there. Optimize deployment of capital in order to maximize value for our stakeholders. Um, they say, and then this is the part where they talk about how while each company operates independently, they sort of share some, some resources. We provide our development teams with access to shared services, including scientific, intellectual property, clinical and regulatory support. Our global team of subject matter professionals provides deep domain expertise in areas such as mental health drug development and life sciences intellectual property. Development teams have access to relevant expertise specific to each stage of their development. We believe our knowledge and specialization in psychedelics and mental health continuously enhance the quality of the services we provide through the sharing of learnings and experiences across the teams. Examples of specific services we provide include project management, research and development, market strategy and development, and corporate finance. Um, yeah, so they have all these different companies and they're all sort of like working on their own with some sort of shared structure. And if you actually, th this, this sort of makes it very difficult to do a financial analysis of, um, of a tie, because if you look at their S1, you look at their financial statements, it's like they have this consolidated financial statement, but then they have to like break out each individual sub company. And, um, it just makes it that much more difficult to get a clear picture of what's actually going on financially at a tie. Now, I have some personal opinions on this idea of this like spread out structure versus a consolidated structure. Um, and my opinions here are based on what I experienced when I worked at hedge funds. So there's sort of two different types of hedge funds. One are the kinds of hedge funds that are like de-siloed. And what that means is that all of the researchers and portfolio managers of the hedge fund, they kind of work together and they are compensated based on the portfolio or sorry, based on the performance of the overall hedge fund. So even if maybe one portfolio manager makes a lot of money and another portfolio manager like maybe loses a little bit of money that year, the performance is sort of averaged together and everyone gets compensated accordingly, according to the performance of the overall fund. And what this does is it sort of incentivizes collaboration. It also makes everyone like, think more about the bigger picture. Um, and you, you can contrast that with hedge funds like Millennium, where Millennium has like a, a single, it's a single entity, but they have many sub portfolio managers and each portfolio manager is operating totally independently and they are compensated only based on the amount of money that they make. Now this is relevant to a tie because if you look in their documents, um, I got to find what it says here. It says, um, they talk about the entrepreneurial incentives that are created by keeping each sub-research group as its own company. It says each program, each program of course being one of these little sub-companies that's researching a specific molecule, they say each program is supported by a team of experts and scientists who are incentivized to achieve success. For subsidiaries that we have acquired, the management teams hold equity interests in those particular entities, thus providing equity incentives at the program level. So what this means, I'm just going to translate this for you, is that if you are a researcher working at a tie, 
Oftentimes, this is an early stage company, so you're compensated with shares. Now, if you were doing this at MindMed, you'd be compensated in shares of MindMed, and those shares would obviously gain value as MindMed gained value. Now, maybe the program that you were specifically working on at MindMed didn't gain value, but MindMed overall did. You would still get paid. At a tie, you get paid based on shares of the subsidiary company that you're working for. So a tie may achieve massive success through one or two of its molecules. But let's say you were working on one of their other programs that is st it's still part of a tie. It's still owned by a tie. But the program that you were working on did not actually make money. Maybe it didn't get through clinical trials. Your shares, the shares, remember, because you don't get paid in shares of a tie, you get paid in shares of the subsidiary that you work for. Those shares are worthless. And so you could be technically an employee of a tie, one of its subsidiaries, and a tie could do very well, but you don't end up making any money for yourself. And what they say here is, of course, that this provides incentive for the individual teams to perform because, you know, they don't want any slackers. Like at a company like, you know, MindMed, I'm not saying this actually happened at MindMed, but like you could be on a research team and maybe you see that one of the other research teams is doing really well and you're like, hey, those guys are about to make us a ton of money. I can kind of take it easy because the money's coming in and I own shares in MindMed, so who cares? And I'm not saying people are actually gonna do that, but I'm saying here, with, with a tie, that's not really possible because it doesn't matter if any of the other teams are successful. Your shares are only going to be worth it if the product that you individually are working on ends up being successful. Um, it says this creates an intense focus on advancing drug candidates for patients. Our structure leaves, um, and they say it also provides benefit because it leaves operational decision-making in the hands of those closest to the programs. So the people that are working on the individual programs have a lot of authority and autonomy over the research that they choose to do. And um, so what, what, what's the benefit of this? I mean, they say that it incentivizes, you know, people to actually get shit done and to innovate and to get drugs to market and bring in revenue. And I think this is true, but it also creates an incentive and sort of incentivizes people to, um, you know, get kind of desperate. And maybe if things aren't going so well for them to maybe you know, falsify a little bit of data or maybe slightly withhold some information about the outcome of a certain trial. And I'm not saying that anyone is doing this at a tie, but what I'm saying is, is this happens oftentimes when people are put into these situations where they eat what they kill, where they only make money if they make money for the company. You see this with salespeople that are compensated mostly on commission. They will often resort to like, you know, less than totally above board tactics in order to, you know, get their sales done or sort of fudge those numbers or whatever. You see this with, um, this is the reason why they ban quotas in police departments because they don't want police, you know, arresting people for the wrong reasons just to like bump those numbers up. And we see this also happen. You know, we see people doing this sort of thing, withholding trial data, kind of lying about the outcome of trials in pharma. It's not like it hasn't happened in pharma before. And you can imagine that if you're a researcher in a situation where you see that your trial's not going well and you know that your shares are going to be totally worthless if you don't perform, you may now be a little bit more incentivized to, you know, maybe buck with things a little bit. Whereas if you had shares in the overall company, you may not be as worried about the outcome of your independent project because you know that as long as the company overall does well, you will do okay. Um, so it, it is a double-edged sword. Like it genuinely does incentivize people to perform, but it also incentivizes people to, you know, be shitty if things aren't going well. Um, and one last point that I wanted to make here is that 
one of the nice things about this for, for the company and for investors in a tie is that the fact that all of these individual these individual programs are kind of in their own little isolated companies, this is very good from a liability protection standpoint. So in the case of like MindMed, and again, I'm not picking on MindMed, just using them as an example. If let's say that one of their drugs gets approved and then like a couple years later, something bad happens and someone sues MindMed for the outcome of one of their drugs. Well, because that drug is just owned by, you know, the MindMed Corporation, they can go after the MindMed Corporation and go after all of MindMed's assets in that lawsuit. But in this case, because each drug is sort of owned by its own independent, like special purpose, um, you know, vehicle, I, I'm obviously not a lawyer and I, I don't want to say this too confidently, but it, it makes it much more difficult for someone bringing a lawsuit to go after a tie as a whole. They may only be able to go after that little subsidiary company. So from a, from a, for the standpoint of like liability protection, um, this is also a good thing. So that's kind of the, the interesting um, structure of a tie life sciences. At some point, if I do a, a longer deep dive about a tie, I'm going to go deeper into this and actually look at some of the financial statements. Um, I didn't, you know, like I said, this, this makes the financial statements a lot more complicated and I didn't have a lot of time to get into it for today's video. Um, and if I do go into it, it'll start looking like an advanced accounting class because there's just like so much financial statement information on their S1. Um, but if that's of interest to people, let me know, and I will try to you know, use some of my financial analyst skills to sort through some of that information for you when I do the part two of this video. Um, so now I wanna talk about their pipeline a little bit. And when we talk about their pipeline, we're gonna come across another point about a tie that I don't know is necessarily obvious to people. So when you see a tie covered in the media, whether we're talking about you know Bloomberg articles or when we are talking about um, you know, Reddit shroom stocks and the way they discuss a tie. Oftentimes a tie is talked about as a psychedelic company. Like the headline I saw on Bloomberg was like, Peter Thiel backed psychedelic company, you know, prepares for blast off or whatever. And interestingly enough, what you're going to see is that a tie is not really a psychedelics company in the same way that Compass Pathways or Mind Medicine is. So Mind Medicine and Compass Pathways they're working entirely on psychedelics, maybe a little bit digital therapeutics, but like every single drug that they're working on is a psychedelic compound. With a tie, that's not actually the case. So they are working on psychedelics, but they're working on about as many non-psychedelic drugs as they are working on psychedelic drugs. And then they're also working on a bunch of digital therapeutics. And when you look at the total number of things that they're working on, only about one third of those things are actually a psychedelic drug. So Obviously, like in some sense, a tie is a psychedelic company, but it is not like a pure shroom stock. And I sort of have two takes on this. One of them is like a good take and one of them is maybe a negative take. So if you're an investor and you care about just the long-term outcome of this company, I think this is good because there's a little bit of a diversification um, into like different types of drugs. So let's say something happens maybe regulatory-wise concerning all psychedelic drugs, like a negative regulatory action. Um, well, at least a tie is working on some non-psychedelic drugs and they have the potential to still make some revenue. But on the other hand, if you're trying to build like a psychedelic portfolio, oftentimes people are looking for, um, you know, these, what they call like a pure play company, a company that is purely tied to the outcome of psychedelics. And if you're looking for like a pure play, a tie is, is almost certainly not it. Like you'd be much better, you know, just going all in on something like MindMed because MindMed is pretty much as pure of a play on psychedelics as you can get. Um, so I, I think that that is just something to point out. And as we go through their pipeline and talk about the drugs that they're researching, you will very quickly see 
how they are not a pure play. So to talk about they, their pipeline, I'm going to pull up their S1 and just sort of read and then sort of comment on each of the things in their pipeline. So I have the S1 here, and I'm gonna begin by just reading from page 138. I'm gonna read this first paragraph. This is just an overview of the business. Um, here's what they say. They say, we are a clinical stage biopharma company aiming to transform the treatment of mental health disorders. So that was the first sentence of their um, S1 description, and notice there was no use of the word psychedelic in there. Um, they say, we founded a Thai Life Sciences in 2018 as a response to the un significant unmet need and lack of innovation in the mental health treatment landscape, as well as the emergence of therapies that previously may have been overlooked or underused, including psychedelic compounds and digital therapeutics. So they don't even say that like they're focused on psychedelic compounds. They're like, we mostly care about like underserved mental health patients. Oh, and by the way, like there's two things, psychedelics and digital therapeutics. So I think that Unlike MindMed, which MindMed's tagline is like psychedelic-inspired medicines, these guys are you know clearly involved in psychedelics, but it is not necessarily the absolute like focal point here. So here, going going on, um, they say we have built a pipeline of ten development programs and six enabling technologies, each led by focused teams with deep expertise in their respected fields and supported by our internal development and operational infrastructure. We believe that several of our therapeutic programs target indications have potential market opportunities of at least 1 billion in annual sales. Um, and then they say one of our Thai companies, Recognify Life Sciences, has initiated a phase 2A trial in the United States. Another way to say that is that while we have um, 16, 10 different drug programs and six other technologies, only one of them has made it to phase two trials. And th this touches on another point that I don't know pe that people totally understand, which is that a tie is actually a lot earlier than what a lot of people realize. I think a lot of people think that a tie is like on the verge of getting shit approved. But the truth is, is that like nine out of 10 of their drugs are not even in phase two yet. And as we're going to see in a minute, the one drug that is about to go into phase two is not even a psychedelic drug. So they are Closer, and, and obviously this is with the exception of their share in Compass Pathways, which at this point is kind of operating independently. But if you ignore Compass Pathways, it's actually accurate to say that um, a tie is closer to becoming a company with a that is selling a non-psychedelic drug than it is to becoming a company that is selling a psychedelic drug just because of the um, state of the clinical trials of the various drugs that are in their pipeline. Um, they say we expect to initiate a phase two trial for another program in 2021 and an additional three phase two trials for other programs in 2022. Um, we also expect to initiate phase one trials for three of our programs in 2021 and an additional four in 2022. So um, that means that seven of their programs have not even begun phase one. So we're talking like preclinical stuff. Um, so let's let's just start going through their drug pipeline which I need to find. Give me one second. So the first thing they make note of in their pipeline is they talk about their ownership position in Compass. Um, and they mentioned that they own 21.6% of the equity in Compass. But Compass at this point is like kind of operating independently. Um, they don't have any day-to-day -day control over what Compass does or doesn't do. So Compass is sort of like their little kid that has grown up and gone off to college. So now they're worried about these other drugs in their pipeline. So let's let's talk about what's going on in their non-Compass pipeline. All right, so the first thing is the project that they're calling Perception Neuroscience. And um, this is a 
drug that is targeting treatment-resistant depression, which is the same thing, by the way, that Compass Pathways is targeting. Now, how is Perception Neuroscience targeting treatment-resistant depression? They're using a um, candidate molecule called PCN101, which is a subcutaneous. Subcutaneous is a drug that is injected into your fat. So unlike a, a steroid or a, um, you know, a COVID-19 shot, subcutaneous injections go directly into your fat. This is like how people inject insulin. They just use these little tiny needles. You, you pinch your stomach and you just shoot the, the, shoot the uh, drug right in there. It is a subcutaneous formulation of R-ketamine, and it is being developed as a rapid-acting antidepressant with the potential to be an at-home, non-disassociative, non-disassociative alternative to ketamine. Um, so this is a ketamine-based therapy, which, and of course, I'm going to give my commentary on all these, and this is my non-doctor, non-clinical research just take. But um, first, the first thing that comes to mind is that ketamine is one of the most crowded sort of like psychedelic plays. You know, there's already tons of ketamine clinics everywhere. Johnson & Johnson has their nasal spray ketamine. Um, Mind Bloom has its oral ketamine that you can get at home. But they're coming into the market with a at-home ketamine that is injectable. So, I mean... We already have at-home ketamine with the Mind Bloom oral tablet, and this requires you to inject it, which, I mean, there are certain people, maybe people that are diabetic that are used to injecting themselves, but I don't know that most people want to be injecting themselves with things, even if we're talking about a small, you know, subcutaneous, like, insulin-type needle here. So, you know, I don't know about that. I can see it being useful as a rapid-acting, non-disassociative alternative. I don't know. It would be interesting to see how it compares to the mind bloom oral ketamine. Um, is that one also non-dissociative as well? You know, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, but that's kind of my take on that. So that's their first drug in their pipeline. Um, and it says, oh, in terms of where it is in the trial, it says that it is, uh, they've completed a phase one and they are planning on advancing to phase two. The next thing in their pipeline, Recognify Life Sciences. The candidate molecule is RL007 and it is for... CIAS, which I forget what the CIA part stands for, but the S stands for schizophrenia. So this is a treatment for um, schizophrenia. RL007, this is a GABA nico nic nicotinic, nicotinic modulator. It is an orally available compound that is thought to alter the excitatory inhibitory balance in the brain to produce procognitive effects in clinical conditions, including schizophrenia. And um, when we talked, when we read the headline about their pipeline, remember they said that one of their drugs is um, in phase two. This is that one. And this is not a psychedelic compound. So this is their, you know, besides what they're doing with Compass Pathways, this is the thing that's closest to getting FDA approved. And it is a non-psychedelic drug for the treatment of schizophrenia. Now, I think it's great that they're, um, you know, creating something that can potentially treat schizophrenia. But psychedelic drug, it is not. And, you know, this is a channel that has come to be about psychedelic investing in many ways. So just an interesting thing to point out. The next candidate drug, this is by a, their subcompany called DemiRx, and the candidate molecule is called DMX1002, um, my favorite rapper. DMX1002 is an oral formulation of ibogaine, a naturally occurring psychedelic product isolated from West African shrub that we are developing for the treatment of OUD, which stands for opioid opiate. 
opiate. I can't, I always forget if it's opiate or opioid. Opiate use disorder. Um, I think most people watching this video probably know that ibogaine is a psychedelic compound that has been used for a long time to treat addiction. In fact, in certain countries, it is a, it is legal to use to treat um, addiction for all, from all sorts of substance abuse problems, not just opiates. Um, MindMed, by the way, is working on an 18MC product, which is an ibogaine derivative. So, you know, ibogaine is definitely something that's very powerful. I know that uh, some of the problems with just raw ibogaine is that it has the potential to give you heart attacks. So people are working on maybe a different delivery mechanism or maybe a twist to the molecule like 18MC to make it maybe a little bit safer. Um, but ibogaine is kind of a crowded field. There are quite a few people doing research in ibogaine and it's not really surprising why. Obviously, like addiction treatment is a, is a massive market and it's also a massive problem. Um, but it's hard to know, like, is this, you know, is this, what is so special about this particular preparation of Ibogaine? I'm sure they go into detail somewhere else, but I don't know that we have time to here. All right, so let's look at their next one. This is from a subsidiary company called GABA, and their candidate molecule is GRX917 for GAD, which is a generalized anxiety disorder. This one I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, this is like very different than what we see at most of these uh, psychedelic companies. GRX-917 is an oral formulation of a deuterated version of edifoxine, which is a compound that has a long history of prescription use in France for treating anxiety disorders. GRX-917 is designed to provide rapid axiolytic activity with improved tolerability to, treatment, treat, to current treatments for anxiety in the United States. Um, and it says here that edifoxine has been observed to have the rapid onset of an and anxiolytic, I always forget how to pronounce that. The, the anxiolytic, that, that just means anti-anxiety. Um, it's been observed to have the rapid onset of anti-anxiety properties of benzodiazepines, which is like Xanax, without their sedating or addicting properties. And this is a big deal. So um, anxiety in the US and in most of the Western world is treated with benzodiazepines, including Xanax. I believe that uh, Xanax is the number one most commonly prescribed a psychiatric drug in the United States. It's, it's either the number one or number two, but like there's so many prescriptions written for Xanax and other benzodiazepines. And benzodiazepines are actually pretty effective at treating anxiety. Like if you take a benzo, you do calm down and they seem to work quite effectively for a lot of people, but they do have some unpleasant side effects. And even worse than the side effects is that they are very easy to get addicted to. Um, and like, I'm not just talking like recreationally addicted to, but like chemically addicted to like benzodiazepine withdrawal can be very brutal for a lot of people. And so there's been sort of this long quest to find things that are as effective at relieving anxiety symptoms without the potential downfalls of like becoming addicted to Xanax or some other benzo. And I think it's just kind of interesting that this is like a, um, they're saying that this is a deuterated version, which deuter deuteration is a process where they replace some of the hydrogen hydrogen atoms, sorry, hydrogen, yeah, hydrogen atoms with deuterium, um, which I believe can alter maybe the speed at which it uh, like gets absorbed into the body and you can sort of like manipulate the quickness or the slowness of relief through the, the deuteration process. So this is, this is just a slightly modified version of edifoxine which is a compound that's been used for a long time in France. I, I think that's kind of interesting. I did look it up and I think it said that it was used in France as early as like the 1960s. Um, in fact, maybe I should look that up real quick just so that we know. Um, Edifoxine, let's pull that up on the Wikipedia. 
Yeah, in the 1960s. It was sold in approximately, it is sold in approximately 40 countries for anxiety disorders. So this is a modified version of that. Again, not psychedelic, but obviously large market potential. And I think we've got to ask ourselves here, I know that a lot of us are very excited about the potential of psychedelic drugs to treat things like depression and anxiety, but you know, the psychedelic drugs do come with these problems of like long trip times. Um, many people are very scared of hallucinating. If you can actually get a powerful anti-anxiety drug that doesn't come with the hallucinations, um, would people rather take the psych psychedelic drug or would they rather take the non-psychedelic safe anti-anxiety drug? I, I, don't, I don't know the answer. I'm just asking the question. All right, the next um, drug in their pipeline is neuronasal. Neur yeah, neuron, neuronasal. <laughs> That's literally the name of the subsidiary company. And the, the candidate molecule is NN101. And it is for minor traumatic brain injuries. And again, this is a non-psychedelic drug that they're working on. This is a novel intranasal formulation of NAC. Um, NAC, I, I should look up what NAC stands for. I looked it up before, but I forgot. It stands for N-acetylcysteine, I believe. N-acetylcysteine, maybe. It is a novel intranasal formulation of NAC. NAC is believed to stimulate the synthesis of GSH, which is an endogenous antioxidant that plays a protective role in the pathogenesis of minor traumatic brain injuries. Um, and this is obviously a big deal for um, you know, obviously people that just anyone who's had a traumatic brain injury, specifically athletes and members of the military. So they, they mentioned here, um, they say an orally administered formulation of NIC was shown to increase the probability of MTBI, which is minor traumatic brain injury symptom resolution at seven days in a third party study conducted by the U S army. Like I said, this is obviously very important for the military because many soldiers, um, end up getting traumatic brain injuries in combat. So this is a drug that they're working on, non-psychedelic with a very real use case. But again, it's like a non-psychedelic drug. All right, guys, they have a long pipeline. I'm sorry this is taking so long. I'm trying my best. Um, Viridia Life Sciences, their candidate molecule is VLS-01 for TRD, treatment-resistant depression. VLS-01 is a formulation of DMT. We're finally back to the psychedelic drugs, guys. Okay, so they are working on more psychedelic stuff. VLS-01 is a formulation of DMT, the active... A molecule of the traditional hallucinogenic drink, ayahuasca. DMT is characterized by an intrinsically short duration of psychedelic effect with a serum half-life estimated at less than 10 minutes. But VLS-01, the candidate molecule here, is formulated to provide a psychedelic experience lasting 30 to 45 minutes, thus potentially allowing for a shorter clinic visit compared to many other psychedelic compounds that may require a patient to be monitored for four or more hours. So I think that this is... Um, this is this is a very useful potential drug here. So they're taking like a classic psychedelic and they're formulating it in a way that, you know, it actually lasts long enough to provide a real benefit for treatment-resistant depression, but it doesn't take four to six hours like a psilocybin experience. Um, and it says, you know, ayahuasca has shown significant antidepressant effects compared with placebo at one, two, and seven days after dosing on a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, a third-party clinical trial. All right, so they're working on more things for treatment-resistant depression, and I'm going to comment on that in a second, but uh, let's finish their pipeline first. We have one, two, three, four more drugs to go through. 
Empath Bio, the candidate molecule being MP01 for post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, MP01 is an oral formulation of an MDMA derivative being developed for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. We are developing MP01 for the potential to have an improved therapeutic index compared to MDMA. So obviously, many of you guys know that uh, MAPS is they've received FDA breakthrough therapy designation for their MDMA treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so rather than just running another trial with MDMA, uh, Atai is doing this like MDMA derivative that they're claiming will actually have better therapeutic properties than pure MDMA. And they don't really go into details. They just say improved therapeutic index. But um, I think that's a good idea. I don't know that there's any reason to believe that MDMA is the end-all be-all for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, now let's look at another subcompany, Rexivia Life Sciences. Their candidate molecule is RLS01. And again, it is for treatment-resistant depression. They've got a lot of stuff going on for treatment-resistant depression. Um, RLS01 is a formulation of SALA. Now this, this is interesting. I, I had to look this up. And it turns out that SALA, this is actually the active ingredient in salvia, which is like a pretty crazy fucking psychedelic. Like salvia is, <laughs> if you ask anyone who's done it, salvia is like really intense and not necessarily in a good way. Um, so this is very interesting that they're working on this. RLS01 is a formulation of SAL SALA, a naturally occurring psychedelic compound with pharmacology that is different from that of psilocybin or DMT. And they are looking at this um, for treatment-resistant depression. And it says, in a third-party study of another formulation of SALA, the effects of the compound were observed to be similar to that of psilocybin, but they, they, what's interesting is that they don't really say like why it's better than psilocybin. It just says, we believe that this data combined with anecdotal usage suggests that SALA may possess rapid acting antidepressant properties. I don't know that you necessarily like, I mean, psilocybin is pretty rapid acting. Maybe they mean it has a shorter trip time. I don't know. But it's, I think it's interesting that they're looking at a salvia derivative. Um, two more, two more to go, guys. Um, cure, cures with a K. Their candidate molecule is KUR101 for OUD, which is opioid use disorder again. And this is very interesting here. Um, KUR101 is an oral formulation of deuterated. Um, I can't say the, the words in the next sentence. So I'm just going to skip. But it says that this chemical, mitragynine, is a component of the leaves of kratom. Now, kratom, if you don't know about kratom, Google it. It's like it's a legal plant that many people use to substitute, op like when they're going through opioid withdrawal, they will use Kratom to substitute those feelings. Um, and it seems to be very effective for people that are dealing with opioid addictions. Um, it's had some controversies around like maybe being banned, maybe not. Um, but they are actually taking, they're actually doing a study on, you know, one of the active chemicals. They're, they're modifying it, they're deuterating it, but they are, um, actually running a real clinical trial of this, which to my knowledge, this is like the first real clinical program of anything related to Kratom. In fact, you know, the, the DEA was planning on making Kratom a Schedule One controlled substance, and Schedule One means that there's no known medical use. So if this study ends up being successful, does that mean that now there is some known medical use and that they may not, you know, ban Kratom? I don't know. Um, some of the commentary they, they put in here is they say, uh, Kratom has a long history of traditional medicine use as an analgesic in parts of Southeast Asia, and its use in the United States has increased in recent years, particularly amongst individuals seeking to reduce prescription opioid consumption or manage opioid withdrawal symptoms. Published third-party human data involving um, the isolated chemical are limited, 
But recent mechanistic insights suggest that this compound may be well suited for medically assisted therapy of opioid use disorder. So I think that's very cool. This is like actually mo most of the psychedelic companies that we see going after opioid use disorder are just focused on ibogaine or you know an ibogaine derivative. This is actually a totally unique um, attack vector on opioid use disorder. And finally, guys, the last drug that they're researching. I'm sorry that that took so long. Um, Demi RX is the name of the subsidiary company, and their candidate molecule is DMX 1001. And again, this is for opioid use disorder. DMX 1001 is an oral formulation of neural ibogaine. Again, ibogaine's back, being developed for the treatment of opioid use disorder. Um, Neural ibogaine is an active metabolite of ibogaine designed to have longer half-life and potentially reduced hallucinations compared with standard ibogaine. So this, again, is like a slightly modified version of ibogaine that maybe has less hallucinations, which is probably a good thing. Um, so just some commentary on that. One of the... If, when, if you're sort of comparing this to companies like MindMed, there are two things that kind of immediately stick out. If you're wondering about, is MindMed a competitor here? Well... In terms of molecules, no. I mean, MindMed's biggest thing that they're focused on is LSD. They have like five different trials for various uses of LSD. And there was a lot of shit that I just read here, but not one of those subsidiary companies is working on anything related to LSD. So again, if you believe that LSD has, has, has a place in the future of medicine, MindMed is where you should, is where you should invest. Um, there's no risk of like a competing LSD product from a tie cannibalizing whatever MindMed has. Um, and then there's another thing that I think is kind of an interesting comparison, point of comparison and contrast with MindMed. And I don't know this is, if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but you know, MindMed, they do have their 18MC program, but the, the rest of their programs are pretty heavily focused on LSD. They're using LSD in varying doses to treat a whole wide variety of ailments. They're going after anxiety, cluster headaches, ADHD, and, and a few other things. So they have like one molecule going after multiple diseases. But a tie, they have like multiple molecules going after the same diseases. So they have at least three different molecules going after um, opioid use disorder. They have three different molecules going after treatment-resistant depression. And then they have like one thing for anxiety and one thing for PTSD. So I, I don't really know what to think about that. I guess, you know, the downside here is that... Uh, you know, they may have some self-cannibalization. Like, let's say that all of their treatments for treatment-resistant depression are effective. Well, that means that clearly none of them are going to become like a dominant player in the market. They're all going to have like some place that is maybe dependent on um, maybe the hit. Maybe we find that one of these treatments is better for certain patients that fit a certain profile. Um, who knows how that will be determined? But I think it's interesting that rather than attacking the same disease from multiple angles, like my, you know, mind med is really just like doing one trial for one disease. So I, yeah, I don't know. It's just something to maybe think about. And um, now I think we're going to talk about the other third of their business, which is the enabling technology. And I'm going to try my best to not spend as much time on that because I know that it took a long time to get through their pipeline. But you know, what do you want me to do? It's a long pipeline. Uh, so page 147, I believe this is on and all right, so this is this is uh, their their digital technology section. They say that we believe our enabling technologies have the potential to support the development of our pipeline and be used as patient support tools. The FDA has also recently expressed support for digital health initiatives through its Digital Health and Innovation Action Plan. 
Our enabling technologies include, and I believe there are six of these, one, two, three, four, five, six, and that's it. All right, so we're gonna get through these quickly. Entheogenics Biosciences is a discovery stage joint venture with Cyclica, which Atai owns 80% of. Dedicated to developing the next generation of innovative mental health drugs, they have a AI-enabled computational biophysics platform which accelerates drug discovery. So the idea is that, um, you know, in the old days, people would just sort of take chemicals and sort of theorize about how they might work and then test them out. In this case, now with like, um, you know, computational biophysics that we know about today and the computational resources available, you can actually like simulate the effects of a wide variety of candidate molecules on, you know, like digital prototypes of a biological system. And this sort of accelerates how one might be able to take, you know, a, a novel molecule from like ideation to actual clinical trials. So they have a computational biophysics platform. Um, they have a brand called Introspect Digital Therapeutics. This is a wholly owned digital therapeutics platform dedicated to improving patient outcomes through personalized care. We believe capabilities such as symptom tracking, mobile application-based therapy, like remote cognitive behavioral therapy, and remote monitoring have the potential to improve patient outcomes as have been observed with other similar therapies, such as paratherapeutics, Reset O. Um, we intend to incorporate digital therapeutics into the design of clinical trials for several of our programs. So I guess the idea here is that this is similar to health mode and mind medicine, which is like, we don't, the, the technology is not very interesting in itself. We're talking about like iPhone apps that maybe have a pop-up every day that says, how are you feeling today? It's been, you know, 10 days since you had your uh, psychedelic assisted therapy session. How would you score yourself on these various, you know, like um, behavioral attitude attributes? And um, while well, this is very simple technology-wise, maybe it helps them accelerate clinical trials because they can gather data. Um, I'm not super bullish on these things as like standalone businesses, um, but you know, it's interesting and I guess it's useful. Inaris Bio is another one of their sub-brands. This is a joint venture with Uniquest, a commercialization and technology transfer company from Queensland, Australia. And what the fuck does it do? It is dedicated to developing a soul gel intranasal excipient technology to facilitate nose-to-brain delivery of platform compounds. So basically, this is a company that is figuring out how to convert drugs into, you know, a nasal spray version, which oftentimes is, you know, better at delivering stuff directly to the brain, which is where you want these psychiatric drugs to go to. Um, Cyprotix is another one of their subsidiaries. They are developing a metabolmix-based biomarkers that stratify treatment-resistant resist, eh, treatment-resistant depression patients. Uh, so the idea here is that treatment-resistant depression, it's depression in general, these, these mental illnesses are kind of like hard to discreetly identify, um, but they're working on a set of biomarkers, which could be things that are, you know, collected through some sort of test, which will be able to um, stratify treatment-resistant depression patients. So we can maybe put some group of people that are that have treatment-resistant depression into this group over here, another group of people with treatment-resistant depression into another group over here based on biomarkers, and maybe the treatment for these people is different from the treatment for these people. Um, it says that the goal is to improve patient outcomes through precision psychiatry approach, through a precision psychiatry approach. Um, currently, this program is in preclinical phase with a focus on mitochondrial energetics. So they're using mitochondrial energetics, whatever the fuck that means, to stratify, segregate patients into a, like discrete subclasses of depression, which I think is very interesting. I think this is a good 
very good piece of technology if it actually works. Two more to go. Uh, Cyber. Cyber is a major-owned subsidiary. Cyber is developing an EEG-based brain-computer interface, or BCI, technology for psychiatric use. Um, if you're not familiar with brain-computer interfaces, look up Neuralink. This is the idea that you can literally like link your brain to a computer, and um, you can both upload and download information between brain and computer. Uh, beneficial effects of brain-computer interface-based approaches have been observed on stress reduction, attention, and emotional modulation in humans. Our initial application of this technology platform is to enhance both mindset and setting prior to and during psychedelic drug use. We intend to co-develop this technology with our psychedelic therapies and introspect digital therapeutics mobile application. So they're saying that they can use this brain-computer interface to maybe manipulate people into the right set and setting before doing psychedelics. I mean... This sounds like one of those things just that is just like way the fuck out there, but who knows? Um, I guess we'll find out. And the last one is Intel Gen X Technologies. It is a manufacturer based in Montreal, Canada with a Canadian Schedule One license, allowing it to develop reformulations of scheduled compounds. Currently, Intel Gen X is developing a formulation of one of their molecules. And... Their focus is on, I believe, sublingual delivery, which, if I'm not mistaken, I think Intel Gen X is the company that is actually developing Cybin's uh, oral psilocybin strips. So I think that, yeah, I think that makes sense. So they're working on, you know, just delivery mechanisms and manufacturing. So I think that's a good, you know, we read through all the details of what they're working on, the psychedelic stuff, the non-psychedelic stuff, and the digital stuff. And, you know, what's my take on it? Well, there are like 16 different things there. Some of them seem like they're bound to work out. It's nice that they're diversifying into drugs that are non-psychedelic. I think that gives them a greater chance of success. Some of their digital platform stuff seems pretty useful. Some of it seems very like out there, like the brain computer interface for set and setting. Um, but you know, it's hard, it's hard to know which of these things is going to work. It's when you read about something like MindMed or Compass Pathways, where you just read like they took psilocybin and then their depression was better. It's like very easy to understand that because, you know, many of us have had that experience before. Or with MindMed, they took LSD and their anxiety was gone. Like, we can understand that. We know what psilocybin and LSD is, and we've had the experience with it, and it's easy for us to understand it. But pretty much everything in this pipeline is like some novel something, whether we're talking about psychedelics or not. These are mostly like new molecules. And even in the case of the things that are known, like ibogaine, they're like usually like derivatives of them or some special preparation. And it's just so hard to know you know, if this stuff is going to work or not. But I think it's clear that while not, not all of these are like totally novel molecules, this stuff is much further along the line of like true novel compounds than what, you know, maybe Compass Pathways and MindMed are working on. Like MindMed and Compass Pathways are working with basically like the vanilla classic psychedelics, which is, has a lot of benefits. It's like very understandable and good. But um, as I've mentioned in my other videos, like there are problems with them. They have long trip times. The hallucinations can be intense. And uh, I've predicted that, you know, we're going to see a move towards like more novel, modified versions of psychedelics. And it seems like that's what a tie is focusing on in many ways. Some of them are maybe novel in a good way. Some of them novel in maybe a not so good way like that at home injectable ketamine. I don't know that that's necessarily going to be a winner, but uh, it'll be interesting to see. So I think that 
the 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 nice thing about a tie is that it is just such a they're casting such a wide net. It's like some of this shit has to work, and so I think from an investment perspective, you would be like pretty dumb to not buy some a tie when it hits the market. Um, I know that I certainly am, and that doesn't mean that I'm not going to keep holding you know my MindMed or my Compass. I think that MindMed, Compass, and a tie are all companies that should be held if you believe in you know the the future of psychedelics and medicine. So to end this video, um, I, I read through a lot of their S1. It was very long. It's like 300 pages, but um, I tried to give it a good skim. And there were a few things in there that I thought were kind of interesting, just kind of like standalone points. And I thought it would be cool for me to read them because not only are they interesting as they apply to a tie, but they're also interesting because I think they kind of apply to most other psychedelic companies as well. So I'm just going to go through and read these. And these are all like sort of disjoint statements. And I'm going to try and make this quick and just kind of have a few sentences of commentary after each one. Um, but let, let's get started here. So the first one is talking about how FDA approval isn't necessarily enough. And I think this is a really good point that we should remember. Oftentimes when these things are being discussed on Reddit or in the comment sections, people will say like, all that matters is the FDA trials. Like that's like, forget all, forget everything else. It's all about like the FDA approval. And I mean, in some sense, that's like true, but what they make, the point that they make here is that the FDA approval is really just like the first step because then you actually have to like sell the drug and they describe some of the things that can like happen in between FDA approval and trying to sell the drug that can sort of derail this. So on page, this is from page 32 of the S1, they say, even if any of our current or future product candidate receives regulatory approval, it may fail to achieve the degree of market acceptance by physicians, patients, third-party payers, and others in the medical community necessary for commercial success, in which case we may not generate revenues or become profitable. It says, sales of medical products also depend on the willingness of physicians to prescribe the treatment, which is likely to be based on a determination by these physicians that the products are safe, therapeutically effective, and cost-effective. In addition, the inclusion or exclusion of products from treatment guidelines established by various physician groups and the viewpoints of influential physicians can affect the willingness of other physicians to prescribe the treatment. We cannot predict whether physicians, physicians' organizations, hospitals, other healthcare providers, government agencies, or private insurers will determine that any of our products are safe, effective, and cost-effective compared to competing treatments. If any product candidates that we develop do not achieve an adequate level of acceptance, they may not become profitable. So the, the point they're making here is that, like, it doesn't, I mean, it, it should be important to see that, like, you know, one of their treatments is actually better than the existing treatment. But that doesn't matter if physicians don't accept it or if like hospital groups or insurance companies don't decide that it's cost effective. Like we, we saw that study recently that compared um, psilocybin to Lexapro and it showed how psilocybin is like twice as effective at treating depression as Lexapro is. But, you know, Lexapro, I think at this point is like a generic drug and it's very inexpensive. Whereas Compass Pathways psilocybin therapy, you know, is probably estimated to cost like thousands and thousands of dollars. So Maybe psilocybin is actually twice as effective, but maybe it costs 10 times as much as Lexapro. Um, no one is going to adopt that, or at least the insurance companies may not adopt this as like a common therapy if, if that's the case. Um, it also may be that the FDA approves it, but some prominent well-known doctor, maybe, maybe in the government, maybe in the private sector, has some misgivings about psychedelics and sort of speaks negatively. That could have a negative effect. Um, and it also says that 
for any approved product, any negative perception of such product once commercialized or of a similar product developed by a competitor may adversely affect our reputation in the marketplace. So they're saying that even like, let's say that their product gets commercialized is doing great, but then some other psychedelic company comes along and maybe they also have some sort of like ketamine or psilocybin-based treatment and something goes terribly wrong with that. Well, now everyone's freaked out about doing any sort of psychedelic therapy. So even if a tie does everything right, the, their their business could still be damaged by some other company having you know some bad thing happen and then the public perception of psychedelics being hurt. And I think that I just thought that this section was interesting to read because so often, like I said, we're so focused on the outcome of the clinical trials that we forget that you know getting FDA approval is really just the first step in operating a successful pharmaceutical company. All right. The next thing is from uh, page 37 of their S1, and this is talking about the hybrid digital therapy plus drug therapy. They say, um, and they say how hard this is to actually get FDA approved. And they say the complexity of a combination product that includes a drug or biologic and medical device, including a digital therapeutic, presents additional unique development and regulatory challenges, which may adversely impact our development plans and our ability to get regulatory approval. Developing and obtaining regulatory approval for combination products poses unique challenges because they involve components that are regulated under different types of regulatory requirements and different FDA centers. So they're going to talk about in a second that the people in the FDA that approve drugs are totally different than the group of people in the FDA that approve medical devices, which is what these digital therapeutics fall under. So it's like if you have some sort of combination therapy in mind, you may get the drug portion approved but you may not get the other portion approved and vice versa. Like those, those groups of people are like totally separate boards within the FDA. Um, and it says, as a result, such products raise regulatory policy and review management challenges. For example, because divisions from both FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and FDA Center for Devices and Radiological Health must review submissions concerning product candidates that are combination products comprised of drugs and devices, the regulatory review and approval process for these products may be lengthened. In addition, differences in regulatory pathways for each component of a combination product can impact the regulatory process for all aspects of product development and management, including clinical investigation, marketing appliances, manufacturing and quality control, adverse event reporting, promotion and advertising, user fees, and post-approval modifications. Um, similarly, the device components of our product candidates will require any necessary approvals or other marketing authorizations in other jurisdictions, which may prove challenging to obtain. So the, one concrete example of this is that I know the, the U.S., I believe, has like treaties with certain countries where like if something is FDA approved, then it is sort of automatically approved in another country. But that's not necessarily the case for devices. So if you have some combination like pharmaceutical plus digital therapeutic, maybe the pharmaceutical part is like by default approved in another country, but the digital part may not by default be approved. And so, you know, it's 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 a big problem. Um. And it just goes to show that when you hear these companies talk about, oh, we're going to have like this cool, like digital trip companion app that's going to make it that much better. Well, maybe it will, but we have to remember that like this now requires like twice as much FDA approval to get done. All right. And there are just two more things that I think are interesting here. And these two are a little bit shorter. Um, this is from page 51 of the S1 and it talks about how competitive this space is. 
It says, if any of our competitors receives FDA approval before we do, our product candidates would not be the first treatment on the market and our market share may be limited. In addition to competition from other companies targeting our target indications, any products we may develop may face competition from other types of therapy. So they're like, it's great if we get you know our psilocybin approved for treatment-resistant depression, but some other company could come along with some other drug that like does a better job than psilocybin at treatment-resistant depression. And like, then what? And this was very interesting. I think they they have a list of companies that are targeting depression in some way. It says, we face competition across our programs in depression, including from Sage Therapeutics, Axon Therapeutics, CIAS, Behringer Ingelheim, Pfizer, Roche, <clears throat> Biogen, Vanda, and Cadent. So like this big old list of pharmaceutical companies that are all, oh, sorry, I didn't even finish that. Novartis, SUD, BioXL, Opiant, and Intracellular Therapies. So like this massive list, I think that's at least 10 companies that are all working on different therapeutics to treat depression. Um, so it's not enough to just have a great therapeutic. It has to like be better than all the existing therapeutics now. And you better hope that it's like better than the therapeutics that maybe come out in the future. And finally, um, they talk about the manufacturing risk on page 55 of the S1. They say, our use of third parties to manufacture and develop our product candidates for preclinical studies and clinical trials may increase the risk that we will not have sufficient quantities of our product candidates, products, or necessary quantities of such materials on time or at an acceptable cost. So they're saying that we don't manufacture any of our own shit. We use these third-party manufacturers. And like, if anything goes wrong with them, I mean, we're kind of screwed. And um, you know, at this point, there aren't like a ton of third-party manufacturers that are able to work with these types of substances. And I think that this right here speaks to how important companies like Cygen and Numinous Wellness that have manufacturing capabilities will be in the uh, psychedelic medicine revolution. So, you know, the, the big companies that we always talk about, like Atai, MindMed, Compass, they don't really do a lot of manufacturing on their own. And I think it's probably useful as investors to look at the companies that are actually able to do the manufacturing on a large scale for these companies because they're the ones that are really building the infrastructure for the psychedelic revolution. So I think that's the last thing I wanted to read from their S1. Um, I'm trying to think of like any closing thoughts here. I think it should be pretty obvious that like MindMed is a buy. Um, I think, you know, it's kind of, one of the things that's kind of concerning is that um, they are so far away from anything getting FDA approved. I mean, they have one thing that's in, you know, phase two trials right now, when you ignore Compass Pathways, of course. Um, so this is a longer term play than many people realize. Um, the founding team, you know, like I said, I didn't have enough time to really go in depth on them. Uh, so I don't know if we should necessarily, if there are any red flags that should have been raised that I didn't raise, I'm definitely gonna do that in my next video. But I mean, at this point, I think it seems silly to not hold any of a tie. I mean, if you, if you're holding compass pathways, then you have exposure to psilocybin. If you're holding MindMed, you have exposure to LSD. And if you're holding a tie, you have, um, you know, a very wide net cast across like these therapeutics that are sort of approaching psychedelics 2.0. Many of them are like modified versions of the original molecules. And um, they also have a seemingly robust digital therapeutics line. If you look at the digital therapeutics that Compass Pathways and MindMed are getting involved in, it seems like, you know, there's not much there. It seems like a lot of smoke and mirrors, whereas the, uh, the digital therapeutics that they're working on here seem to be a little bit more meaningful and they have like six different um, accelerative technologies or digital therapeutics that they're working with. 
So I think that um, that's pretty important, uh, specifically the um, biophysics simulator that allows for accelerated drug discovery. Of course, I am not qualified enough to know if that's legit or not, but assuming it is, that is like the type of digital accessory that a pharmaceutical company actually needs. Um, so yeah, I think that that's all I really have to say about a tie. Again, I'm sorry that I wasn't as prepared for this video as I was for my other videos. Um, I know this was like a bit of a rambler and, um, you know, I, I hope that you will <laughs> give me a second chance, um, after watching this video, I'm definitely going to come back and do a second pass at a tie once they IPO. But I think this is at least a good place to start. Um, Please let me know in the comments, what did I miss? What are some things I should check out about a tie? What are some questions that you want to have answered? And, um, you know, I appreciate that you spent the time to watch this video. If you liked the content, please like and subscribe. This In the next two weeks, I'm hoping to have some really dope content out. I've got some stuff that I've been working on in secret that I'm hoping will actually work out and will have available that's going to be like very different than the type of content that you've seen uh, so far on my channel. So stay tuned for that. And, you know, uh, have a good trading week coming up, guys. I know that, you know, MindMed's on the NASDAQ now. Things are getting real. And um, thank you so much for allowing me to be at least one of the voices guiding you along the psychedelic investing journey. Peace out.